chapter 10 for ethics for the new millennium by the Dalai Lama and chapter 10 is entitled the need for discernment let me just take a little drinky poo here mm. that's some good stuff good cup of joe right there okay the need for discernment chapter 10 In our survey of ethics and spiritual development, we have spoken a great deal about the need for discipline. This may seem somewhat old-fashioned, even implausible, in an age and culture where, such, where so much emphasis is placed on the goal of self-fulfillment. But the reason for people's negative view of discipline is, I suggest, mainly due to what is generally understood by the term. People tend to associate discipline with something imposed against their will. It is worth repeating, therefore, that what we are talking about when we speak of ethical discipline is something that we adopt voluntarily on the basis of full recognition of its benefits. This is not an alien concept. We do not hesitate to accept discipline when it comes to our physical health. On doctor's advice, we avoid foods that are harmful even when we crave them. Instead, we eat those that benefit us. And while it is true that at the initial stage, self-discipline, even when voluntarily adopted, may involve hardship and even a degree of struggle, this lessens over time through habituation and diligent application. It is a bit like diverting the course of a stream. First, we have to dig the channel and build up its banks. Then when the water is released into it, we may have to make adjustments here and there, but when the course is fully established, water flows in the direction we desire. Ethical discipline is indispensable because it is the means by which we mediate between the competing claims of my right to happiness and others' equal right. Naturally, there will always be those who suppose their own happiness to be of such importance that others' pain is of no consequence. But this is short-sighted. If the reader accepts my characterization of happiness, it follows that no one truly benefits from causing harm to others. Whatever immediate advantage is gained at the expense of someone else is necessarily only temporarily. In the long run, causing others hurt and disturbing their peace and happiness causes us anxiety. Because our actions have an impact both on ourselves and others, when we lack discipline, even eventually anxiety arises in our mind, and deep in our heart we come to feel a sense of disquiet. Conversely, whatever hardship in, in, it entails, disciplining our response to negative thoughts and emotions will cause us fewer problems in the long run than indulging in the acts of selfishness. Nevertheless, it is worth saying again that ethical discipline entails more than just restraint. It also entails the cultivation of virtue. Love and compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, and so on are essential qualities. When they are present in our lives, everything we do becomes an instrument to benefit the whole human family. Even in terms of our daily occupation, excuse me, whether this is looking after children in the home, working in a factory, or serving the community as a doctor, lawyer, business person, or teacher, our actions contribute toward the well-being of all. And because ethical discipline is what facilitates the very qualities which give meaning and value to our existence, it is clearly something to be embraced with enthusiasm and conscious effort. 
Before looking at how we apply this interdiscipline to our interactions with others, it may be worth reviewing the grounds for defining ethical conduct in terms of non-harming. As we have seen, given the complex of given the complex nature of reality, it is very difficult to say that a particularly a particular act or type of act is right or wrong in itself. Ethical conduct is thus not something we engage in because it is somehow right in itself. We do so because we recognize that just as I desire to be happy and to avoid suffering, so do all others. For this reason, a meaningful ethical system divorced from the question of our experience of suffering and happiness is hard to envisage. Of course, if we want to ask all sorts of difficult questions based on metaphysics, ethical discourse can become exceedingly complicated. While it is true that ethical practice cannot be reduced to a mere exercise in logic or to simple rule following, whichever we may look at it, in the end, we are brought back to the fundamental question of happiness and suffering. Why is happiness good and suffering bad for us? Perhaps there is no conclusive answer, but we can observe that it is in our nature to prefer the one to the other, just as it is to prefer the better over what is merely good. We simply aspire to happiness and not to suffering. If we were to go further and ask why this is so, surely the answer would have to be something like, that's the way it is, or for theists, God made, it this, God made us this way. So far as the ethical character of a given action is concerned, we have seen how this, independent on a, how this is dependent on a great many factors. Time and circumstance have an important bearing on the matter, but so too does an individual's freedom or lack of it. A negative act can be considered more serious when the per perpetrator commits the deed with full freedom as opposed to someone who is forced to act against his or her will. Suddenly, given the lack of remorse this reflects, negative acts repeatedly indulged, indulged can be considered graver than an isolated act. But we must all consider, also consider the intention behind the action as well as its content. The overriding question, however, concerns the individual's spiritual state, the overall state of heart and mind, the kunlung, in the moment of action. Because, generally speaking, this is the area over which we have the most control, it is the most significant element in determining the ethical character of your acts. As we have seen, when our intentions are polluted by selfishness, by hatred, by desire to deceive, however much our acts may have the appearance of being constructive, Inevitably, their impact will be negative, both for self and others. How long, how though, are we to apply this principle of non-harming when confronted with an ethical dilemma? This is where our critical and imaginative, imaginative powers come in. I have described these as two of our most precious resources and suggested that possessing them is one of the things that distinguishes us from animals. We have seen how afflictive emotions destroys them. And we have seen how important they are in learning to deal with suffering. As far as ethical practice is concerned, these qualities are what enable us to discriminate between temporary and long-term benefit, to determine the degree of ethical fitness of the different course of action open to us, and to assess the likely outcome of our actions, and thereby to set aside lesser goals in order to achieve greater ones. In the case of a dilemma, we need, in, we need in the first instance to consider the particularity of the situation in the light of what in the Buddhist tradition is called the union of skillful means and insight. Skillful means can be understood in terms of the efforts we make to ensure that our deeds are motivated by compassion. Insight refers to our critical faculties and how in response to the different factors involved, 
we adjust the ideal of non-harming to the context of the situation. We could call it the faculty of wise discernment. Employing this faculty, which is especially important when there's no appeal to religious belief, involves constantly checking our outlook and asking ourselves whether we are being broad-minded or narrow-minded. Have we taken into account the overall situation or are we considering only specifics? Is our view short-term or long-term? Are we being short-sighted or clear-eyed? Is our motive genuinely compassionate when, we, when considered in relation to the totality of all beings? Or is our compassion limited to just our families, our friends, and those we identify with closely? Just as in the practice of discovering the true nature of our thoughts and emotions, we need to think, think, think. Of course, it will not always be possible to devote time to careful discernment. Sometimes we have to act at once. This is why our spiritual development is of such critical importance in ensuring that our actions are ethically sound. The more spontaneous our actions, the more they will tend to reflect our habits and dispositions in that moment. If these are unwholesome, our acts are bound to be destructive. At the same time, I believe it is very useful to have a set of basic ethical precepts to guide us in our daily lives. These can help us to form good habits, although I should add my opinion that in adopting such precepts, it is perhaps best to think of them in less in terms of moral legislation than as reminders always to keep others' interests at heart and in the forefront of our mind. So far as the content of such precepts is concerned, it is doubtful whether we could do better than turn to the basic ethical directives articulated not only by each of the world's great religions, but also by the greater part of the humanist philo philosophical tradition. The consensus among them, despite differences of opinion concerning metaphysical grounding, is to my mind compelling. All agree on the negative negativity of killing, stealing, telling lies, and sexual misconduct. In addition, from the point of view of motivational factors, all agree on the need to avoid hatred, pride, malicious intent, covetedness, envy, greed, lust, harmful ideologies such as racism, and so on. Some people may wonder whether the injunctions against sexual misconduct are really necessary in these times of simple and effective contraception. However, as human beings, we are naturally attracted to external objects, whether it be through the eyes when we are attracted by form, through the ears when the attraction arises in relation to sound, or through any of the other senses. Each of them has the potential to be a source of difficulty for us, yet sexual attraction involves all five senses. As a result, when extreme desire accompanies sexual attraction, it has the ability to cause us enormous problems. It is, I believe, the fact that is recognized in the ethical directives against sexual misconduct articulated by every major religion. And, at least in the Buddhist tradition, they remind us of the tendency for sexual desire to become obsessive. It can quickly reach to the point where a person has no room left for constructive activity. In this connection, consider, for example, a case of infidelity. Given that wholesome ethical conduct entails considering the impact of our actions not only on ourselves but on others, too, there are the feelings of third parties to consider. In addition to our actions being violent toward our partner, given the trust that the relationship implies, there is the question of the lasting impact this kind of upset in the family can have on our children. It is now more or less universally accepted that they are the principal victims of both family breakup and of unhealthy relationships in the home. From our own perspective, as the person who has committed the act, we must also acknowledge that it is likely to have the negative effect of gradually corroding our self-respect. Finally, there is the fact that in being unfaithful, other gravely negative acts may result as a direct consequence 
lying and deception being perhaps the least of them. An unwanted pregnancy could easily be the cause for a desperate prospective parent to seek an abortion. When we think in this way, it becomes obvious that the momentary pleasures afforded by an adulterous liaison are far outweighed by the risk of the likely negative impact of our actions on both ourselves and others. So rather than seeing strictures against sexual misconduct as a limit to freedom, we do better to see them as a common sense reminder that such actions directly affect the well-being of both oneself and others. Does this mean that merely following precepts makes precedence, takes precedence over wise discernment? No. Ethically sound conduct depends on us applying the principle of non-harming. However, there are bound to be situations when any course of action would appear to involve breaking a precept. Under such circumstances, we must use our intelligence to judge which course of action will be least harmful in the long run. Imagine, for example, a situation where we witness someone running away from a group of people armed with knives and clearly intent on doing him harm. When we see the fugitive disappear into the doorway, moments later, one of the pursuers comes up to us and asks which way he went. Now, on the one hand, we do not want to lie to injure the other's trust. On the other, if we tell the truth, we realize that we may contribute to the injury or death of a fellow human being. Whatever we decide, the appropriate course of action would appear to involve a negative deed. Under such circumstances, because we are certain that in so doing we are serving a higher purpose, preserving someone from harm, it might well be appropriate to say, oh, I didn't see him, or vaguely, I think he went the other way. We have to take into account the overall situation and weigh the benefits of telling a lie or telling the truth and do what we judge to be least harmful overall. In other words, the moral value of a given act is to be judged in relation to both time, place, and circumstance, and to the interests of the totality of all others in the future as well as now. But while it is conceivable that a given act is ethically sound under one particular set of circumstances, the same act at another time and place and under a different set of circumstances may not be. What, though, are we to do when it comes to others? What are we to do when they seem clearly to be engaging in actions which we consider wrong? The first thing is to remember that unless we know down to the last detail of the full range of circumstances, both internal and external, we can never be sufficiently clear enough about individual situations to be able to judge with complete certainty the moral content of others' actions. Of course, there will be extreme situations when the negative character of others' acts will be self-evident, but mostly this is not the case. This is why it is far more useful to be aware of a single shortcoming in ourselves than it is to be aware of a thousand in somebody else, for when the fault is our own, we are in a position to correct it. Nevertheless, remembering that there is an essential distinction to be made between a person and their particular acts, we may come across circumstances when it is appropriate to take action. In everyday life, it is normal and fitting to adapt in some degree to one's friends and acquaintances and to respect their wishes. The ability to do so is considered a good quality. But when we mix with those who clearly indulge in negative behavior, seeking only their own benefit, ignoring others, we risk losing our own sense of direction. As a result, our ability to help others becomes endangered. There is a Tibetan proverb which says that when we lie on a mountain of gold, some of it rubs off on us. The same happens if we lie on a mountain of dirt. We are right to avoid such people, though we must be careful not to cut them off completely. 
Indeed, there are sure to be times when it is appropriate to try to stop them from acting in this way, provided, of course, that our motives in doing so are pure and our methods are non-harming. Again, the key principles are compassion and insight. The same is true in respect to those ethical dilemmas we face at the level of society, especially the difficult and challenging questions posed by modern science and technology. For example, in the field of medicine, it has, it has become possible to prolong life in cases which just a few years ago would have been hopeless. This can, of course, be a source of great joy, but quite often there arise complicated and very delicate questions concerning limits of care. I think that there could be no general rule in respect to this. Rather, there is likely to be a multiplicity of competing considerations, which we must assess in the light of reason and compassion. When it becomes necessary to make a difficult decision on behalf of a patient, we must take into account all the various different elements. These will, of course, be different in each case. For example, if we prolong the life of a person who is critically ill, but whose mind remains lucid, we give that person the opportunity to think and feel in a way that only a human being can. On the other hand, we must consider whether in doing so they will experience great physical and mental suffering as a result of extreme measures taken to keep them alive. This in itself is not an overriding factor, however. As someone who believes in the co continuation of consciousness after death of the body, I would argue that it is much better to have pain with this human body. At least we can benefit from others' care, whereas if we choose to die, we may find that we have to endure suffering in some other form. If the patient is not conscious and therefore unable to participate in the decision-making process, that is yet another problem. And on top of everything, there may be wishes of the family to take into account, along with the immense problems that prolonged care can cause them and others. For example, it may be that in order to continue to support life, one life, valuable funds are kept from projects which would benefit many others. If there is a general principle, I think it is simply that we recognize the supreme preciousness of life and try to ensure that when the time comes, the dying person departs as serenely and peacefully as possible. In the case of work in such fields as genetics and biotechnology, the principle of non-harming takes on special importance because lives may be at stake. When the motivation behind such research is merely profit or fame, or even when research is carried out merely for its own sake, it is very much open to question where it would lead. I am thinking particularly of the development of techniques to manipulate physical attributes, such as gender or even hair and eye color, which can be used commercially to exploit the prejudices of parents. Indeed, let me say here that while it is difficult to be categorically against all forms of genetic experimentation, this is such a delicate area that it is essential that all those involved proceed with caution and deep humility. They must be especially aware of the potential for abuse. It is vital that they keep in mind the wider implications of what they are doing, and most important, ensure that their motives are genuinely compassionate. For if the general principle behind such work is simply utility, whereby what is deemed useless can legitimately be used to benefit what is judged to be useful, then there is nothing to stop us from subordinating the rights of those who fall into the former category to those who fall into the latter. The attribute of utility can never justify the deprivation of an individual's rights. This is, highly this is a highly dangerous and very slippery slope. Recently, I saw a BBC television documentary about cloning. Using computer-generated imagery, this film showed a creature scientists were working on 
a sort of semi-human being with large eyes and several other recognizably human features lying down in the cage. Of course, at present, this is just a fantasy. But, they explained, it is possible to foresee a time when it will be possible to create beings like this. They could then be bred, and their organs and other parts of their anatomy used in spare parts. Surgery for the benefit of human beings. I was utterly appalled at this. Oh, terrible. Surely this is taking scientific endeavor to an extreme. The idea that one day we might actually create sentient beings specifically for that purpose horrifies me. I felt the same at this prospect as I do at the idea of experiments involving human fetuses. At the same time, it is difficult to see how this kind of thing can be prevented in the absence of individuals disciplining their own actions. Yes, we can prom promulgate laws. Yes, we can have international codes of conduct, as indeed we should have both. Yet if the individual scientists do not have any sense that what they are doing is grotesque, destructive, and negative in the extreme, then there is no real prospect of putting an end to such disturbing endeavors. What about issues like vi vivisection? Where animals are routinely caused terrible suffering before being killed as a means to further scientific furthering scientific knowledge. Here I only want to say that to a Buddhist, such practices are equally shocking. I can only hope that the rapid advances being made in computer technology will mean there is less and less call for animal experimentation in scientific research. One positive development within modern society is the way in which, together with a growing appreciation of the importance of human rights, people are coming to have greater concern for animals. For example, there is growing recognition for the inhumanity of factory farming. It seems, too, that more and more people are taking an interest in vegetarianism and cutting down on their consumption of meat. I welcome this. My hope is that in the future this concern will be extended to consideration for even the smallest creatures of the sea. Here, though, I should perhaps sound a word of warning. The campaigns to protect human and animal life are noble causes, but it is essential that we do not allow ourselves to be carried away by our sense of injustice so that we ignore others' rights. We need to ensure that we are wisely discerning in pursuit of our ideals. Exercising our critical faculties in the ethical realm entails taking responsibility both for our acts and for their underlying motives. If we do not take responsibility for our motives, whether positive or negative, the potential for harm is much greater. As we have seen, negative emotions are the source of unethical behavior. Each act affects not only the people closest to us, but also our colleagues, friends, community, and ultimately, the world.